0: My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them now, Have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Great, thank you, Carol. So Andrew's going to um, speak to us now. So let's just pray for Andrew quickly. Lord, we thank you for. We thank you for your word, Lord. It is living and active. And Lord, we just open our lives to you now. Lord, we want to receive what you have to say. Lord, thank you that Andrew is your vessel. And we pray, Lord, you would give him the very words that you have, Lord, for each one of us. Lord, fill Andrew with your spirit. And Lord, we pray you'd speak through him, Lord, with such clarity and power. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks Bill and thanks Carol for that brilliant reading. Um, did you, if you got the St. Matt's email, did you recognize the picture that Barney put in it? Did anyone recognize that? Does anyone look at the St. Matt's email? Anyone recognize the picture? Come on. Somebody. Oh dear, this isn't good. Ah, thank you Barney. The other Barney knows what the first Barney did. Um, it was the picture from The Chosen when they had the wedding feast at Cana. and. If you know me, you might have been wondering when you saw the topic whether I was just going to show you 20 minutes of that episode. Um, To be honest, it's such a rich, powerful episode that you might have done better watching that than listening to me for the next 15, 20 minutes. But, But can I encourage you, when you go home, if you do sit down this evening and you think, oh, what should we watch on TV maybe just watch that one it's season one episode five it's it is really well done so we're not doing that but before I start I'm going to need some help later on in this talk so I just wanted to check do we have any mathematicians in the building raise your hands come on Serena you've got to raise your hands I'm not talking about people who are who are who are studying maths now and people who I'm talking about people like me who studied it a very, very, very long time ago. Any mathematicians? Not many. Three, three. Any chemists? Yee, well done, Steph. Um, Oh, well done, yes. Yes, Sam, you're a chemist. Definitely. Any... Right, finally, the third group is psychologists or counsellors. No psychologists? Right, we're relying on on you two for that bit, okay? Because there are no psychologists. Anyway. I will be asking you questions later. Don't panic, Victoria. It's not going to be bad. Don't worry. Right. This week, uh, as Jonathan said, this week and on some apparently random Sundays between now and Easter, we are going to be looking. They're not random. They're chosen. But we're going to be looking at John's gospel and the miracles that John chose to record in his gospel. So we're going to start with a bit of background on John please shout out who was John can you tell me a disciple sorry Joel's asking the next question already yes the <laughs> disciple who Jesus loved very good anything else what do we know about him what did he do before Jesus met him fisherman yeah son of Zebedee I think I think Jesus called the, James and John the sons of thunder anyway Um, I was going to ask the question that Joel answered, which was how does he refer to himself? And he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, do you think that's arrogance or humility? Bit of both, bit of both. Arrogance and humility. I, I think it's humility because John actually was really close to Jesus. There's a bit in... John 13 at the Last Supper when Jesus tells the disciples that someone, is, someone in the room is gonna betray him and Peter wants to know who it is, but Peter isn't sitting next to Jesus, Jesus, John is. So he says to John, hey John, ask him, who is it? Um, and actually if you look, I don't, I don't know the Greek, but if you look in the Greek and you'll see it in footnotes in the NIV and the NLT, apparently the Greek actually says that John was leaning on Jesus's chest. You have to remember, in those days, they reclined while they ate, and John literally was hearing the heartbeat of Jesus, the Son of God. So, I think John was quite close. At the crucifixion, you remember, Jesus sees John, sees Mary, and says, Mary, this is your son. John, this is your mother. So, I think it's humility. Um, Why did John write a gospel? Does anyone know why John wrote a gospel. He does actually tell us at some point. Anyone remember? Serena, go on, first one, John 20. So he wrote his account of Jesus' life so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we may have life in his name. What else did he write, Serena? He wrote something else the next chapter. That was chapter end of chapter 20. Yes, Jesus did many other things. If all of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So John had it, because John was there literally leaning on God. He had a huge back catalogue of miracles, of teaching, of prayers that, that probably the other gospel writers didn't quite have. I want to suggest something to you, and this is just me, so you can, you can treat it with the respect or lack of it deserves. John's gospel was written after the other three. That is fairly widely believed. John was a very old man at that point. The other three gospels were written. They were circulating amongst the early church. That was important because the church had realized that Jesus wasn't coming back immediately. They had to write things down so that the teaching would be reliable so john's seen these other three accounts so if you're john in that situation what do you do well what you write is what you think the other three accounts haven't really brought out so i want to suggest that that john wrote his gospel specifically to give us some new perspectives and if you look at it it's the only gospel that refers to jesus as the lamb of god It's the only one where you have some really important conversations with Nicodemus, hence we get you must be born again, and with the Samaritan woman at the well and the whole mission that came out of that conversation with the Samaritan woman. John has all of Jesus's prayers at the Last Supper. Uh, You know, I am the vine, you are the branches. He has the promise of the Holy Spirit, the advocate who will explain everything to you. Um, I think that's why, so that's, I believe, how John wrote his gospel. He's showing us stuff we wouldn't know from Matthew, Luke and John. It's not that that the stuff in Matthew, Luke and John isn't important. It's just he's adding to it. And that's, I think, true of the miracles, or as John calls them, the miraculous signs that he records. And this one, the wedding at Cana, is one of four that we'll be looking at over the next months or so and I'm guessing most of us know the story of the wedding at Cana and I and I could summarize it as Jesus saves the day and everyone has a good time at the wedding and that that sort of sums it up doesn't it it doesn't feel or it never used to feel very spiritual to me to produce a load of wine and yet John says verse 11 as Carol so beautifully read, this miraculous sign at Cana was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So if this is Jesus revealing his glory, I think it actually was pretty spiritual. So let's, that's the reason for taking a deeper look at it. The background from John 1 is that Jesus has literally just called his first disciples to follow him. So, where does he lead his his disciples? Somewhere quiet to teach them? The desert, maybe for meditation? No. He goes to a celebration. He goes to a wedding party. Now, in Matthew, Luke, and John, there are lots of accounts of Jesus eating with people. That was really important. But he was usually eating with tax collectors, sinners, and the like. And there's lots of accounts of him staying with people, usually tax collectors, Sinners and the like. But this is different. This isn't a meal just for a meal. This is a celebration. It's a party. And of course, Jesus took a lot of stick from the religious leaders of the day for who he spent time with. They were never very happy with him. And he got very frustrated with them. And there's a bit in Luke that just, I suppose, shows how frustrated he got with those religious leaders. He said, to what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? They're like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks... And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Jesus was the friend of sinners for a good reason. He came to seek and save those who were lost. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, that's still our mission. So I think it's quite refreshing to find the Son of God relaxing and having fun with his friends and his family. And the point I want to stress is that in Jesus' mind, that is all this wedding was supposed to be. But we have an impending social disaster. They're running out of wine. Jewish weddings went on for several days, apparently. And um, drinking was a very big part of it. Perhaps the family concerned weren't wealthy enough to afford lots of wine, or maybe loads of unexpected guests turn up. Maybe they were expecting Mary and Jesus and a disciple or two, and maybe 12 of them turn up. I don't know. Whatever the reason, this disaster... I mean, this was a really significant disaster. And Mary obviously knows the family, realises what is about to happen, and doesn't want them to be embarrassed in this way. So what does she do? She goes and tells Jesus. Right psychologists or counselors that interaction in verses 3 and 5 i think i heard victoria laugh actually when it was read that interaction between mary and jesus what does it suggest that mary already knew she well exactly she, well i think there's two things the first thing is absolutely she knew that jesus could do something about this so she did know who he was because so this this was his first public um, miracle but there must have been private miracles which meant that mary was well aware i don't know whether she knew what he was going to do but she knew he could do something about it there was a second thing she knew as well she knew well what jesus says to her and i assume she knew is it's not my time um you know Jesus was very clear with her. My time has not yet come. I, I'm not supposed to go public today. But the beautiful thing about it is Mary knew because she was asking him that he was going to do it anyway. So there was something about that relationship and that strength of that bond. She knew that out because of their love that if she asked him to, he would do it. In The Chosen, they do have this lovely scene where Mary just looks at Jesus and Jesus sort of like, okay, and then Jesus sort of acknowledges that he's going to do it, which may or may not be quite how it happened, but it is a good picture. Jesus wasn't supposed to be doing this. Mary says, please, and he can't refuse her request. And I suppose if you've been nodding off, this is my first point for us to think about, the effectiveness of prayer. Because if you're like me, sometimes I find myself thinking, what is the point of me praying for this again. God's almighty. I'm just a little old me. I know he can do this. He might be about to do this. But I'm not going to influence him one way or another with my little prayers. Well, I think Mary shows us here that that logic is completely, and maybe only me that has that logic, that logic is completely wrong Jesus was not supposed to be revealing his glory he was not supposed to be going public with his mission but mary asks him and from that strong bond of love and out of love for her friends the family who were going to be embarrassed if they ran out of wine he does it anyway so i i think that should turbocharge our praying if we are petitioning god if we're requesting something from him from a settled and strong relationship of love and if it's out of love for whoever we are praying, then God is not in any way immovable. He responds to our prayers. We saw, when I was up here a few weeks back, we were thinking about praying and how he likes us to be persistent. And I think that's because he wants to know that we really mean it. We really care. But I suppose the encouragement is keep on praying. God is not immovable. My second point is, and this is probably obvious to you all, look at the way that Jesus answers Mary's request. So just suppose you were hosting a party at your house. There were, I don't know, 30 or 40 people packed into your house or your garden, and you realize that in the next few minutes you're going to run out of wine or beer or whatever the most important drink is. So you get in your car, you go to the off-license. How much would you buy? Well, maybe for 30 or 40 people... 12 bottles of wine, a case of wine, maybe two to be on the safe side. So there were probably 100, maybe more, but probably not 200 people at this wedding. And it could go on for a few days. So you definitely want more than a case or two of wine. But how much would you, if you were Jesus, have produced? Right, mathematicians, you're up. Hope you're concentrating, the two of you. Six stone water jars something between 20 and 30 gallons each. How many bottles of wine is that? Anyone can guess this. You don't have to be a mathematician. I've got 600. Do I have any, any advance on 600? Sorry? 900. Peter, you are the... You, you get a gold star, Peter, either because you knew it before or you're just... So, sorry? Okay. He's, he's going to have a bottle instead of the gold star. That's Right. right. If each if each jar was about 25 gallons on average, that is 900 bottles of wine. Um, that's, I don't know about you, but I think that's quite extravagant, even for a Jewish wedding. And one other thing, what about the quality of the wine? It wasn't just acceptable plonk from the off-license, it was fine wine, the sort of wine that gets wine experts like Mark Nish very excited. As John says, now John, but so, so okay, loads of fine wine still struggling to think it's that spiritual john says this is how jesus the son of god revealed his glory by extravagant generosity providing 900 bottles of fine wine i think this wedding party probably went on for a very long time i also think that if i'd been at it there must have been some left over i would have been so i don't know about you mark but i would have just tried to have a carafe or something that i would have taken home And kept for posterity, or possibly till a much sadder time, two or three years later. My final and third point is about transformation. So, in the other Gospels, we've got miracles where Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and some fish, and somehow he multiplies them to feed 5,000 people. But this miracle seems different to me. So, chemists, Steph, you're on. What do you need to make wine? was far more accurate than i could have managed (laughs) i I, i'm going to try and summarize that in in my terminology but i think actually steph was much more accurate i i think you need grapes or grape juice you need yeast is that your is that what you were talking yeah some sort of yeast um is there anything else you need to produce? yeah time for fine wine you probably need several years don't you so i think this is the thing that's always got me about this miracle. Somehow Jesus doesn't just transform the water into the right chemicals. He seems to accelerate a process that should have taken years. And he does it really well, of course, because not all aged wine actually does taste that good. So, so that, that's a very strange, well, it's just a very, very amazing miracle. Why does John t- choose to tell us? about this miraculous sign I think it's because Jesus is all about transformation it's what he's just starting to do with his disciples in John 2 it's what he's doing it's what he does with people throughout all the gospel accounts if you remember the paralyzed man who gets sort of let down from the roof of the house in Capernaum where Jesus is, is teaching Yes, Jesus transforms his physical condition, he heals him, but more importantly, Jesus also brings about a spiritual transformation. Before anything else, Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. So he tackles the spiritual side before the physical side. Jesus may have been the friend of sinners, as he was known, but he was, and he still is, the arch enemy of sin. He takes sin very seriously, and so should we. Pretty much every time he heals someone in the New Testament, his parting words to them are, go and sin no more. That's why transformation is so important. Jesus wants to bring people out of the darkness into his light. And I guess it's what he... I mean, I know it's what he wants to do with each one of us, transform us from some pretty ordinary water to some very special wine. Transform us from the sinners that we naturally are into someone like him, into his likeness. Sadly, that process of transformation isn't as quick or as pain-free as it was at Cana. Because Jesus doesn't do transformation on us. He doesn't zap us and we're transformed. He can only transform us if we are willing, if we are receptive to his love, unless we're prepared to let him into every part of our lives. And that's difficult because it's very easy to compa—I know this compartmentalize and let Jesus into certain bits and not into other bits. But that's what we need to do. We need to give him access to every part of our lives. That transform- then transformation can happen as we walk with Jesus and respond to him with soft hearts throughout our daily lives, hour by hour, minute by minute. And remember, John says this transformation is how Jesus reveals his glory to the world. How does he reveal his glory to the world now? Gulp, through us, through the transformation in us. I don't feel up to that most of the time, but I think it's what he wants to do. He is transforming us so that we can show his glory to the broken world we live in, to our friends our families, our colleagues at work or at uni or at school, our neighbors, even to the person who strikes up a random conversation with us at the supermarket checkout. Jesus wants us to bring his glory to those people. This sort of transformation is costly, but it's what he's seeking to do in each of our lives if we will let him. So, If you've nodded off, my three main points, summary, were, first, God is not immovable. He responds to our prayers. We should keep on praying. Secondly, we worship a God who is ridiculously generous. I mean, really ridiculously generous. So let's be generous with our time, our money, our lives, just like him. And thirdly, Jesus wants to transform us, but we need to be engaged In and committed to that process of transformation if it's to happen and that is going to be costly but and finally in the context of the cost of following Jesus let's go back to John this is right at the start of his account of Jesus's life we have a wedding feast now John loves his symbols and signs what else do you think he's alluding to here where else does John write about a wedding feast Well, in Revelation 19, and I'll just read this to close. So in Revelation 19, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give God the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's us, the church, if we're being transformed into his likeness, his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I don't think they'll be running out of wine there. If the band could come back up, James. Thank you. If the band could come up, I'm just going to pray to close off, but, but I will do it while the band is coming up. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you we have you in our lives. Thank you that you are focused on our transformation. Thank you that you are seeking to transform us from something very ordinary to something very special, that you're trying to transform us to be more like Jesus. So we, just as we we close, we want to say to you well you don't have to say this to god but if you if you want to you can join me in saying this we want to say to you that we are committed to that transformation too lord we know it's a process we know it isn't easy but we want you to live in our hearts and to transform us we open our lives and our hearts to you god we give you access to all the parts of our lives, the bits that maybe we're happy to have on show and the bits that we really aren't, Lord. We give you access to them. You know about them, we can't hide anything from you. But we open our lives and our hearts to you, seeking to be transformed, wanting to feel and understand how that process works and how you want to work in our lives to make us more like you. And, Lord, we know there is a cost to that. We know that it won't always be easy. We know you didn't promise us an easy life. In fact, you said in this world there will be trouble. So, Lord, we, we confess we don't like the trouble bit, but we are committed to following you day by day, hour by hour, and we want you to walk with us in our lives to help transform us And most of all, Lord, to allow us to bring your glory, a little bit of your glory to our friends and families, our colleagues, even the strangers, Lord, that we meet. Help us to bring a little bit of you and your glory and your light into those people's lives. Lord, we, we don't know whether they'll see you, but we want them to see you in us. So help us, Lord, to be transformed into those people that you
0: want. In Jesus' name, amen.